0: Not ...able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than a precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the heart of is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise man into madness, and a a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of one thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the works of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in righteousness, and there is a wicked man who who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool." Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. See, this alone I found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man whose wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face changed. This is God's word for us today.
1: Last summer, Disney came out with a movie called Light Year and it featured the first gay couple, for the first time, on the big screen. There was a bit of pushback, as some people protested Disney doing this, that they felt like Disney promoting lifestyles that not everyone was accepting, and and some were still questioning, and they didn't feel like it was good for Disney to, to do this, especially for children's movies. The actor, Chris Evans, who was the main voice of the main character, applauded Disney's moves to reflect all types of people, and he said those who react negatively should be disregarded. I found his statements in an interview with Reuters Television really interesting. He said this, The real truth is those people are idiots. Every time there's been social advancement, as we wake up, the American story, the human story is one of constant social awakening and growth. And that is what makes us good. There's always going to be people who are afraid and unaware and trying to hold on to what was before, but those people die off like dinosaurs. I think the goal is to pay them no mind, march forward, and embrace the growth that makes us human. I'm not trying to get into the debate about whether Disney should do this or not, but what I find really interesting is the words that he uses to couch this whole controversy, and he talks about the social advancement, the growth, the the marching forward of humanity in this moral revolution. And this language is really common. We hear it all the time, don't we? The idea that humans are advancing and progressing is the dominant theme we hear. Not just in social or ethical issues, but scientifically, intellectually, politically, in many areas. The idea is that humans are advancing. And that man's continual efforts, (coughs) our hope, (coughs) excuse me, our hope is that man's continual efforts will continue to improve and perfect our world. This is really the evolutionary theory, right? Right? The idea is that millions of years ago we started as a a little amoeba or some kind of single cell, and over millions and millions of years we've progressed and we just keep progressing, we keep advancing to become more and more perfected or better and better. But Ecclesiastes, along with the rest of the Bible, will challenge that perspective. Is humanity progressing and advancing? What is the truth about mankind? Today, the passage that we're looking at is going to delve into this question. Who is man? What is the human story? And what makes us good? Those are the questions we want to look at. Now, as we begin in verse 10 of chapter 6, we're coming to a turning point in Ecclesiastes. Notice that the author identifies this. He says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. It's kind of a summary statement. And it tells us what he's been doing over the last three chapters. Let's just give a quick review. If you remember, chapter three opened with that beautiful poem about everything under the sun, good and evil, a time for everything under the sun. And in chapter three, verse 11, Kohelet, the author, says that he believes that God has made everything beautiful in its time. But man, even though we have eternity in our heart, we can't quite see what God is doing, largely because we're so temporary and we have vanity. We see vanity all around us. And so Kohelet identifies the vanity that he sees in the world that we all experience. That's been the last three weeks we've looked at the ten vanities that he has observed. They include observations of injustice, death, oppression, the success of envy, loneliness, disappointment with human leaders, false religion, injustice and oppression in government, and the evils of loving money. Along the way, he suggested that there's a better way to respond to many of these vanities. And consistently, he has held out the possibility of experiencing God's gift of joy and satisfaction within the vanity that we all experience in the fallen world. So this is what has come to be, what we've been looking at the last three weeks. God has subjected the creation to futility to accomplish his perfect work. He is doing something. And our memory verse that we suggested for this passage, Romans 8, tells us that he is forming glorious children of God through the sufferings of this present time. But our experience or the sufferings of this time are like the pains of childbirth before the child is born. And so that brings us to this new section today. That's what he's been talking about. He's he's already named what has come to be. He's going to stop looking at the vanity around us. He's going to change his focus to looking at man. Notice what he says here. It is known what man is. It's known what man is. He, he assumes that there is a knowledge about who man is. Now, where does he get that assumption? Well, that's the Old Testament perspective, right? This is an Old Testament book in the Old Testament. Genesis 1 to 3 and the first five books of the, of the Bible tell us clearly what man is. Man is sinful. He's a fallen creature under God's judgment in need of redemption, Contrary to popular opinion, man is not progressing along the evolutionary path. He has regressed or fallen from a state of innocence into a state of sin and corruption. Man cannot redeem himself through his own righteousness or through his wisdom, because as we will see in our passage today, man is unrighteous and unwise. These truths are divinely revealed by God, and it's wise for us to, to submit to God's correction and to see, seek his forgiveness and redemption. This is the fear of God that Ecclesiastes is, cur- is encouraging us to. This is the wise path, although it is rarely followed. And instead, men vainly dispute with God over the question what is man? We see that in this verse, in verse 10. It is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Now, that's not saying that we don't dispute. It's just saying that we cannot win this argument because God is stronger than us. But we do dispute with God about who we are and what is our right relationship with God. But he says that these, these, these disputes, these words just increase the vanity in the world. Notice verse 11. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? We just come up with all these other ideas about who man is. It increases vanity, and it's a disadvantage to mankind. As men pursue their different philosophies and experiment with different conceptions and imaginative ideas about who man is and how he should live, few know what is good for man to do during his vain and fleeting life. And that's what Solomon, again, he said this many times. He says it again in verse, in verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? That's the question that he consistently asks over and over throughout this book, and he's asking it here again today. And he's going to answer this question. What is good for man during his life? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 11 wisdom is good. Wisdom is good. That's the emphasis of the passage today. I know this passage is a little confusing. It's long, but you'll notice that there is this repeated theme throughout. I've tried to make a slide. I don't think it fit. Well, there it is. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> what I was trying to do, and it's hard to get on one screen, I was trying to put the whole chapter and, and highlight the sections where he talks about wisdom, the advantages of wisdom. So in 11 and 12, he says that wisdom is what is good. It's, it gives us protection. It, it gives, it's an advantage. It preserves life. Verse 19 says wisdom gives us strength. And then chapter 8, verse 1, a man's wisdom makes his face shine. It brings joy to a person. And so that's the emphasis of this passage that we see through this repeated encouragement to get this wisdom and so the question is how do we get this wisdom and that's the emphasis of the passage this morning we get this wisdom by responding wisely to God's work of subjecting the world to futility and he's going to teach us this wisdom in a couple different ways there's two main sections the first section is this this section of proverbs in verses 1 through 10 and it teaches us to get wisdom through wise conduct so, because our, section, our passage is so long today, I can't go in detail into each one of these uh, proverbs. We could probably do a whole sermon on these proverbs in and of themselves, but I want to try to just paint in broad strokes and give you an idea of, I think, what he's trying to say to us here. How we get wisdom, there's five things that he's going to suggest here in these proverbs. The first is, we get this wisdom through mourning, not parties and laughter, Okay, verses 1 through 4. Notice verse 2 in particular. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. Again, who is man? What is man? Well, this is the end of all mankind, right? It's, it's death. And so through mourning, we come to fully understand and embrace the reality that we all must face. We are under God's judgment, and, and his judgment is that we will physically die. And so we have to take this seriously. We have to enter into this mourning, this grief, and grief has a refining effect. Notice verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by, by sadness of face the heart is made glad. And that phrase, is made, is made glad, is probably better translated, is made better Right? The heart can be made better as we mourn and grieve death. I remember my, my grandparents uh, died. They were both 97 years old when they died, and they died within two weeks of one another. This happened about six years ago. And it was a big event in my family. They, it was the passing of a generation. They were just uh, very central to our family. And so we had about a whole month of just funerals and grieving and mourning and I remember at uh, my grandma's funeral, one of my cousins was really visibly uncomfortable. And she just said, there's too much sadness here. We just need to go out and have some fun tonight. You know? she just, and, and that's the way some people respond to, to sorrow, to grief, to death. Right? They just ignore it. They just try to push it away and, and go off and, and, and have a party or, or go to the bar and drink. Right? But he's saying, don't do that. Enter into the mourning process. Let it have its effect and I found with my, grandma's, my, my grandparents' funerals, that month of mourning, it, it was difficult. But it had a good effect in my life. It caused me to profitably reflect on my life and how I should live. So I think that's the encouragement. How do we get this wisdom? Through mourning. As, as, as Danny read in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We have to come to grips with reality of, of who we are that comes through mourning. The second thing is, through wise rebuke and not songs of fools, verses five through six, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. We'd probably much rather go to a concert, right, than hear a convicting sermon or, or a convicting podcast, right? Something like that. But, but we're not going to learn wisdom that way. The third thing is, he says, avoid corrupting activities, verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Even the wisest person, if they begin to engage in in bribery or oppression, it will corrupt them. It will drive them into madness, which is another word for even just folly. It, 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 It twists our mindset. And so if we're going to find the wisdom that God has for us, we have to avoid these types of corrupting activities. Fourth, avoid anger and be patient. Verses 8 and 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. See your commitments through to the end. Significant commitments like marriage and family and and, and job, these types of things. We need to to, uh, see these these commitments to the end. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And then the fifth thing is, don't think that life was better in the past or easier in the past. Notice verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. The idea is, the past was a better time. It was an easier time. I wish I lived in the past, right? Things are so difficult right now. But he's saying, that's not wise. As Solomon has, has told us repeatedly, there's nothing new under the sun, right? The same things happen again and again and again. It, it, it wasn't easier to learn wisdom in the past than it is today, and wisdom is still available for each one of us today as we look to the Lord and as we respond wisely to life. So that's the first section of Proverbs here. Through wise conduct, we can learn, we can get the wisdom that he's recommending to us. And now he turns to a second area. And this is where I really want to focus on today. How do we get this wisdom that is good for us under the sun? Well, we need to consider God's work and fear God. Consider God's work and fear God. What is God's work? Well, notice verse 13. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. God has made some crooked things that we cannot straighten out. We need to come to grips with that. We need to realize that. We need to accept that. What are some of the crooked things? Now, this doesn't mean that God is crooked. These are things that we feel are crooked, that we want to straighten out, but he has imposed them upon us, and we cannot straighten them out. Well, the first thing is found in verse 14. In the day of prosperity be joyful and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him I think a better translation of that last phrase is man will not find does not know anything about his future right and so this is something that we experience is very crooked right God makes days of prosperity and days of adversity and we have no control when one comes Right? We have no control, we have no knowledge, we have no perception of when the days of adversity are coming. It's just outside of our control. This drives many of us crazy. right? We try to live our lives so that we can avoid adversity and only experience prosperity, but it is completely out of our control. And we do not know what is going to happen to us in our future. That's God's work. The second thing is found in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. I think we would say this like this God allows good things to happen to bad people, and he allows bad things to happen to good people. And to us, this seems very crooked. This is frustrating. This is vanity but this is God's work. So, how do we respond to this? There are several unwise ways to respond to this. And through this, and Kohelet wants to teach us the wise way that comes from fearing God. Notice notice what he says here in verses 16 to 17. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good, and here again, what is good for man to do? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come forth, shall come out from both of them. So this is a key section right here. I really want to delve into this. And at first it seems somewhat shocking, and remember he is... He writes in a shocking way to get our attention. But we have to understand what he's saying here. And he's teaching us the fear of God. He's saying the one who fears God can come through this with both of these things that he's recommending. So let's look at this here. What is the wise response to God's work? We've looked at God's work. Now how do we wisely respond to it? How do we learn the wisdom that he wants us to learn? Well, the first thing he says is, don't be overly righteous in verse 16. Now, we have to let Kohelet explain what he means by this. And he will do this in verses 20 to 21. I've made another, I've tried to show this here. He he, he introduces the subject in verse 16 and then he explains what he means by overly righteous in verses 20 and 21. And notice what he says in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So, what does it mean to be overly righteous? It means this, to think that you are more righteous than you are, or to think that you can be more righteous than you can be, and to depend or trust in your righteousness to some degree. This is especially in response to this, this work of God, right, to the vanity that we experience, the crookedness that we experience and are several false assumptions that the overly righteous person makes. The first is this. People suffer because of sin. If I am righteous enough and I stop sinning, I won't suffer. That's a false assumption because verse 20 says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You can never be good enough, right? That's just not in our ability. There's another assumption here as well. Notice, sometimes when we say, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's also based on a false assumption, right? The assumption is that there are good people. But what does verse 20 say? There is no one who does good. There's no one who is righteous and does good. This is consistent with biblical teaching. Psalm 14.3, Danny preached on this psalm a couple of months ago says there is no one who does good, not even one. And this is expanded in Romans three ten through 12, where it says none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So you see, God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. God allows bad things to happen to bad people. This is what mankind disputes the most about with God. But this is what man is, a sinful fallen creature under God's judgment. And we will never respond wisely to God's work until we fully understand this and fully accept this this is the fear of God that he's recommending here that, leads to, that gives us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because you see, Christianity is the only religion that's based on grace, what God does for us. It's not about what we do for God. But the over-righteous never understand this. I think the best example of the over-righteous person was the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were the ones that Jesus had most conflict with, and they were very offended that Jesus did not affirm their righteousness, but instead he kept exposing their sin and calling them to repent. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.20, he said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This was shocking, right? Because the Pharisees presented themselves as the most righteous people, but Jesus said their righteousness isn't enough. See, the problem with their righteousness was that it was external, and it didn't go to the heart. This is what Jesus said to them in, in Luke 16:15. He was talking to the Pharisees, and he said, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination... In the sight of God. Man's standards and God's standards are not the same. What men value oftentimes is an abomination to God. And the overrighteous person values their own standards above God's. Now we kind of do this today too, I think. Have you ever heard somebody say, and I've I've said it too, you know, my neighbor, they're they're good people, right? We just kind of say, so and so, they're good people. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we have a certain standard, right, of good people. They're nice. They're friendly. They, they go to work. They give to charity. They mow their lawn. They shovel their snow, right? They take care of fam- their family. They mind their own business. Uh, they, they, they smile and wave and say hi when I pass them on the street. They seem to be honest. I don't know that they've committed any crimes. They're good people, right? We might even add today that they accept and respect all different kinds of lifestyles, right? They're good people. But these are all outward things, right? God looks at the heart, things that we can't see. He looks at the thoughts and the intentions. Notice Luke 18, 9 through 14. Here's another beautiful story that represents what we're talking about here this morning. I know we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but it's it's really appropriate to what we're looking at today. Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the best definition of being over-righteous that we could probably find, right? You trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Over righteous man, right? Thinks he's better than other people. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is the right perspective before God, right? We don't stand on our righteousness. I am a sinner, God. I need your mercy. Be merciful to me. Jesus drives us home. He says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And see, I think this is God's intention in, when he brings adversity into our life and the experiences that we think are crooked his purpose is to humble us and for us to stop exalting ourselves. This is the overrighteous. This is the way they are. This is what they do. And notice that they view other people with contempt. Jesus said this in Luke, and Solomon says this in verse 20, 21. Do not take to heart, take, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that a refreshing perspective? You see, but the over-righteous are really easily offended. They have a very thin skin. They forget their sins when other people sin against them and they get all hot and bothered, right? This is how you know if you're overrighteous. You're very easily offended by what people say, especially if it's critical. So that's the, that's the first wise response to God's work. Don't be overrighteous. The second one he says in verse 16 is, don't be too wise. Again, we have to let Kohelet explain what he's talking about here. And he does that in verses 23 and 24. And this is a consistent theme throughout the book, right? All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out. So what does it mean to be too wise? Well, it means to think you are wiser than you are Or that you can be wiser than you can be and you depend or trust in your wisdom to some degree. The false assumption here, again, is that sometimes people suffer because they're foolish. And so I'll avoid suffering and I'll avoid what God has made crooked by being wise, maybe wiser than the average person, right? But we're not that wise, nor will we ever be. Nor will any, any man or woman ever be that wise. Nor will all humanity, pooling all of our wisdom together, ever be wise enough to straighten out what God has made crooked. We're just not that wise. right? But that goes in contradiction to, to prominent v- views today of humanism, progressivism, this type of thing, that man is, as man progresses, we will straighten out what's crooked in this world. We don't need God. We can save ourselves. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 25 reminds us, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Kohelet is encouraging us to be wise, right? When he says don't be too wise, he's not saying don't be wise. But what he is saying is that true wisdom knows its limit, and the truly wise person knows that they know very little. This self-understanding is crucial when responding to God's work that seems crooked to us. It calls for faith and trust in God rather than leaning on our own understanding. It calls for fearing God rather than exalting ourselves. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it best. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all of your ways. He will make your path straight. The third and final wise response to God's work is don't be overly wicked or a fool. This kind of balances out the first two, right? The first two are don't be overly righteous and be, don't be too wise, but, but also don't be overly wicked and be a fool. He explains this in verses 25 to 26. He says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So the overly wicked or the foolish person gives oneself over to sinful desires. The idea is that You know, it doesn't matter, right? Good things happen to to bad people, bad things happen to good people. It doesn't matter if I'm righteous, it doesn't matter whether I'm I'm wise, so I'm just going to forget it all and I'm going to just enjoy sin, right? This is a very common response. And Solomon uses the picture of the enslaving woman, and it's probably meant to be both literal and figurative or metaphorical. Right, literally in Solomon's day, the person who was marked as the sinner was the one who got caught up in sexual immorality. Proverbs 5 and 7 really warn about the sexually immoral woman who hunts for the precious life and seeks to capture it and destroy it. Since Proverbs was written from a father to a son, the immoral woman is used, but sexually immoral men are equally as dangerous. And then in Proverbs 9 he personifies both wisdom and folly as women in a metaphorical sense, right? And so the lady of wisdom gives life, the woman of folly gives death. Both are inviting men to come to their house and eat their food. And so I think the main point here is that although sin may at first feel freeing and exhilarating, it always leads to bondage, addiction, and enslavement. And he also says oftentimes even a premature death. There was a girl I grew up with uh, in my childhood. Her, her brother was one of my best friends and so my family knew her family. We did a lot of things together growing up and I remember her being a very vivacious, joyful, energetic person. But then um, we, we moved away. We lost touch with them and then I, I ran into her several years later when I was in college. And um, she had changed drastically. She had become a very bitter and hard person because she had a very close friend who suddenly, unexpectedly, and tragically died. And so she was just really bitter. She's like, I don't understand why God would take my friend from me. I don't know how he could let that happen. I remember sitting with her and talking to her, and she said, you know, it just doesn't matter if I go out tonight and get high or have sex or party. It just doesn't matter. Nothing matters. And so she had given herself over to that kind of lifestyle. And I think that's what Solomon is describing here. This is sometimes the response to God's work in our lives that we, we perceive to be crooked. We just give ourselves over to sin, and he's just saying that's, that's just going to lead to a premature death. There's nothing good there. Now, verse 27 and 28 are very difficult in this passage. Um, I think he's starting to sum things up, and he says something that's very confusing and difficult. Notice verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, it seems to be a bit misogynistic, but we want to note a few things here. The author seems to go out of his way to say that he is not making a universal statement, but he is sharing his experience. Notice verse verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. This is the only editorial comment in the body of this book where it says, says the preacher. So it's like he's saying, this is my personal experience. Now, Kohelet, the author, is presented as Solomon. We know that Solomon, the Bible tells us, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Many have noted that in such a situation, one's view of women can't help but be skewed, right? <laughs> now, we also read in 1 Kings 11.4 that Solomon's wives turned his heart away from God in his later years. The Bible does not teach that women are in any way inferior to men, but rather all alike are sinful and fallen and in need of God's mercy and grace. And I think that's what he's saying in verse 29. Verse 29 is the more universal statement. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The point I think he's trying to make is that very few find the wisdom that he is recommending of humbly accepting what God has said about man and responding appropriately, especially during times of adversity. Instead, most seek out schemes. He says that at the end. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This word schemes literally means inventions, creations, imaginations, right? God made us upright. We were created in a right relationship with God in which we understood that that our, our place as the creature was subject to God but we wanted something different, right? We wanted to be like God. That's what Satan tempted us with. And now we invent many different ideas that exalt ourselves and demean God or disregard him entirely. This is what Romans chapter 1, verses 20, 21 to 23 says. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their, in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind. Captivated by our own imaginations, few of us find the wisdom and life of a right relationship with God that he is recommending to us in, the, in this passage today. I think this is consistent with Jesus' teaching. Unfortunately, Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the path is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Well, in conclusion this morning, let's look at a couple of goads and nails. Remember, the words of the wise are like goads, right? They're like that sharp stick that, that, that pokes us, that hurts us, right? And, and there's some hard words in this passage today. You might feel the pain of them, but they're intended for your good. They're intended for our good, right? And so the first goad we want to look at today is we need a humble self-evaluation before God. This is absolutely crucial. This is foundational for if we're going to find wisdom, if we're going to find salvation, right? There are a couple of examples in the Bible of people who had correct self-evaluations. One was the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. He's struggling with his inner sin, right? He's talking about the things I want to do, I do not do. The things I do not want to do, I do. And then he says this, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a correct self-evaluation before God. I am a wretched man. I need deliverance. Job was another man who came to the same conclusion. You know the story of Job? He was considered to be a very righteous, wealthy man, but he lost everything. This is a long conversation with his friends, and then God shows up, and throughout this, and he says, I want to I talk to God. I, I want to... I want to contend with God, right? And so God shows up, and God says, who is this that wants to contend with me, right? And and these were the last words of Job. In Job 42, 5 through 6, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, I think for most of us here today, we're religious people, right? We're here in church. And our temptation is probably that temptation to be overly righteous. I know that's my temptation. I know that's something I've struggled with in my life. I grew up in a pastor's home. I was a pastor's kid. I wasn't a rebellious pastor's kid. I I was a good kid. You know, I had a good reputation with those at school, went on to college, went to seminary, became a pastor, and I had this perception. I might not have said this verbally. Or consciously, but I had this perception that I was a pretty good guy, you know, like the world was pretty lucky to have me. You know? (laughs) Again, I wouldn't say that, but I, I might have thought that, right? But it was through some times of adversity, some very difficult times in my life, that God had to break me of this, had to convict me that Greg, you're not better than anyone else. You're just as sinful as everyone else. You need my death and my resurrection and my forgiveness as much as any other human being on the planet. We all need to come to this place of conviction. This is the gift of God in our lives really, to truly understand who we are and what our need is. And that leads us to the second goad and that is hope in God alone. Hope in God alone. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. God is working a perfect and beautiful work He has subjected the creation to futility, but as Romans 8 tells us, he's done it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God has made some things crooked, and he alone can straighten them. The good news is he has promised that that's exactly what he's going to do. He will make the crooked straight. And there's a little hint of hope in verse 29 when he says, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but he sought out many adventures, but but, but God made man upright. If he did it once, he can do it again. And it is in fact what he is doing in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Stop disputing with God. Stop arguing with God. Accept his judgment of you. Because for our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin. Him who, he who knew no sin, he made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not overly righteous, truly righteous, When Christ imputes his righteousness to us, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. This is the gospel. This is the salvation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to celebrate this morning as we go to communion. This is Jesus giving us his body, his blood, which was necessary for us because of our lost and fallen state.